The holidays are upon us, and 2023 strategies are being made. Regardless of your industry or size, Connected TV should play a vital role in your marketing mix, and Mountain is making it more affordable and easier than ever to get seen. Mountain's self-serve platform gets you access to tens of thousands of audience segments, serves your ads exclusively on top streaming networks, and automatically optimizes your campaign thousands of times a day for peak performance. The result? High-impact ads that always find their target at any time with any show. Visit Mountain.com to learn more. Under sunny skies here at Whistler Mountain, we have now the women's downhill race. Perfect conditions for the racers today. The course is fast, it is bumpy, that's for sure. It should be exciting. The favorite is American Lindsey Vaughn. She won all but one of the downhills on the World Cup Tour coming in, but she comes in with a sore shin that has bothered her now for about the last 10 days. A look of determination on her face as she breaks out of there. She said, I'm not trying to be Michael Phelps. I just want a medal of any color. Will it be this one? Tim. I can't imagine what she was going through at the top, knowing how much she wants this gold, how much she deserves it, and has proven to be the best woman in the world. But nonetheless, it comes down to her executing today. She's got that sore shin. She said this is probably the worst course in the world for my shin because it's so rough and rattly. But you know that is not in her mind right now. 1,700s ahead off the top. But Tim, she made a bit of a mistake there. Really went wide on that turn. Now, Mancuso probably skied that turn better than Vaughn. Who would have expected it would be Mancuso on the lead when Vaughn comes down the hill in this Olympic downhill. Now she's four tenths ahead. Well, there you go. She got right back online, and she's so powerful. This is the most powerful, the most fit woman on tour, and it plays a role today. This is the longest course that they've skied on this year, a 1.8 miles long, more vertical than any other. That's going to come into play down at the bottom, especially. Now, this turn is a very powerful turn. The frog bank, a big bank turn. All the forces go against you. It's like carrying a piano on your back. Not perfect there. Eight tenths ahead. And this back is a, a woman, little bit there. This is a woman who can make mistakes and still go faster than the rest of the world. That's what she's proven all so far this year and last year, in fact, in downhill. The finish line is in view there. You see the stands. One big jump to come near the bottom here. Over the hot air, perfectly landed, down to the finish line, chasing her teammate, Mancuso, Lindsey Vaughn, into the lead by more than a half second. Welcome to Great Minds, and for our 200th episode, we have an extraordinary treat. And that is, if not the greatest, then certainly in the top handful of female athletes America has ever produced. She has won 82 races on the World Cup circuit. She's a three-time Olympic medalist, including the gold medal at the Vancouver Games in 2010, which I was lucky enough, Lindsay, to go to, uh, and is uh, just an incredible humanitarian and advocate for female empowerment around the world. We are thrilled to have the incredible Lindsay Vaughn. Welcome, Lindsay. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Great intro. Great intro. I appreciate there you it. Go. You, you can take me with you everywhere you go. So, <laughs> yes, please. They're my hype man. <laughs> so, Lindsay, there are so many places to start with you, but I thought it might be nice to go back sort of to the beginning and go back to your grandfather who took you, as I understand it, was really the first one to take you out there in Wisconsin and then, of course, in Minnesota. But you clearly took to this very early. Can we go back to sort of the beginning, Lindsay, and talk about those early days and remembrances for when you were first on skis with your grandfather, Don? Yeah, I remember, you know, we had a lot of ski trips together. That's like, you know, my family my grandparents and aunts and uncles all lived in Wisconsin. You know, my, my parents lived in, and I lived in Minnesota and kind of what we always did together was, was ski. And I remember, um, you know, I was the first grandchild, so I got spoiled and I remember skiing with my grandparents. Um, my grandma didn't ski the whole time, but um, my grandpa always was with me and we skied in Keystone and, and uh, steamboat. And I just had such great, memories of those experiences you know I had so much fun and I think that really instilled the passion of skiing in me you know my my grandparents are really what started my entire family you know down the road down the path of of loving skiing not just racing but but skiing as a family um so I definitely have them to thank for it and and my grandpa just I I watch videos it's it's hard for me to watch the videos and not and not cry because um you know, my grandfather passed away in, in, you know, 28, 2017. And my grandma passed away this, this spring. Um, but they just had so much enthusiasm and love. And it was such a, a positive experience as a family. I just, I, I love those moments so much. And there's also a level of work and commitment that's required to someone to perform as well as you do. And one of the great quotes that I saw you said was, follow your dreams. If you have a goal and you want to achieve it, then work hard and do everything you can to get there. And one day it will come true. That's true for you, the work part. Talk about that. Did that, with your grandparents, did that work ethic come from them, from your parents? There's a special level of commitment required to do what you do at the level that you did for many, many years. I think it's a combination of things. I think it's a combination of watching, you know, people like my grandfather and my grandmother, you know, work. My grandfather worked so hard every day. You know, he would be up at 4.30 and, you know, off to the shop and come home, you know, at night, greasy and smelling of, you know, sweat and, you know, just grinding away and never complaining. And the same with, you know, my, my parents, you know, my dad um, was a lawyer, is a lawyer and extremely hardworking. And um, my mother had a stroke when she had me and then she had four children, including triplets after that. And, you know, was just a very, you know, a very positive person, but never complained. So there was always, you know, this, this um, kind of perspective of, you know, you do whatever it takes and you know, there's no complaining and you work hard to get what you want and, you know, to support your family and, and things like that. And um, there is no, there's no quit in my family. You know, there's, there's no such thing as not finishing the job, you know, or just doing, you know, halfway. It's, it's all, it's, it's always all the time. 
in my house, it was more about finishing what's on your plate, which was a little bit, a little, <laughs> we a little did that bit too. different. And, uh, with five kids, you got to finish it. Otherwise someone else is going to, so right, a little every bit. man for himself. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so you show talent really early and you start traveling. Your mom drives you all over. Uh, a lot of time in Oregon, a lot of time in Colorado. Talk about those times. I imagine you were in the back seat of the car sleeping while your mom was driving. Uh, but you must have some really fond memories of those early days on the road. I do. You know, I, my mom and I spent um, a few winters alone together in, in Vail um, when I was, you know, 11, 12 years old. And we would drive. It was 18 hours from Minnesota to Colorado, just her and I. Um, and I would be her navigator, you know, no GPS, just the, the, the old school maps. And, uh, you know, I would be her navigator. And um, those are really fond memories, you know, it was always an adventure. And, you know, I always realized how much my family was giving up for me, you know, my mom was leaving her four other children to spend, you know, several months alone with me in Colorado. And um, it was not an easy thing at all for her. But um, I, I really loved those moments that I got to share with her. And I, and I also traveled, you know, to, to Oregon, to Mount Hood every summer since I was seven years old um, for ski camps with, with uh, my coach, Eric Seiler from Buck Hill, Minnesota. And, uh, you know, my dad would often go with me um, when he could, when he wasn't working. And um, those trips I flew by myself with, the, with, or sometimes with the Buck Hill ski team, but, uh, I just have great, great memories, you know, of those times. And again, I think that's what instilled the passion of skiing within me is, is the, are those special times that I've had with my family. Cause it wasn't just about, you know, skiing, it was about, you know, the experiences that we shared together. Fantastic stuff, Lindsay. So I want to talk about um, Coach Colby Scudder and the Gravity Corpse and Vail, which I know is a very special part of your life. But we started in Wisconsin and Minnesota. And to me, there's something very special about people from the Midwest that I find them to be more grounded that the values, and I'm not talking about political values, but I'm just talking about the, <laughs> the human values, that there's a, a humanity to people from, and I've spent a lot of time in Minnesota. I was lucky enough uh, to go to one of the playoff games at Target Field a couple of years ago. Um, and we have a lot of friends in Minneapolis, St. Paul in particular, but I know the National Sports Center up in Blaine has some great stuff. Talk about that Midwest, and do you think I'm onto something there? Am I right? Am I wrong? Or somewhere in the middle? No, I think you're absolutely right. It's, we we call it Minnesota Nights. You know, it's it's. I think it's a lot of times people are too nice. Um, it's just kind of the way, and not everyone, obviously. And and uh, you know, I won't speak for anyone's political opinions, but I'd say inherently most of the people that I know that I grew up with are just really salt of the earth people that, you know, are exceptionally kind um, and, you know, willing to do anything for, for other people. I mean, you know, it's just going to my friend Hillary's house and her mom would always have fresh cookies baked. And it was, you know, the accents and my mom, it, my mom is, you know, the typical, you know, Minnesota nice. She would, you know, go, she went to get a, a mortgage and she came back and she was so happy. And I was like, mom, how'd it go? And she's like, oh no, the banker was so nice. And, 
he gave me a great he was just so nice I'm like oh mom what was the you know what rate did he give you he's like oh well my credit's really bad so you know I got like eight percent I'm like mom that's not good you know and she was just like oh but he was so nice I'm like that's not how it works you know it's like you know everyone accepts kind of everything at face value I think a lot of times there and, and uh you know um but it's just I've never in my experience I've never met someone in Minnesota that is not a nice person yeah I, I agree with you I like how you can dial up that accent by the way on command that's very impressive oh yeah you should see me after a couple of tequilas it's uh, the, the accent I've worked really hard because I used to get made fun of so much when I moved to Colorado the accent was yeah it's not a, it's not a great social social uh help at all. <laughs> oh my God. The Midwest, some of the Midwest accents like Skokie, Illinois has a very particular accent. Really? And yeah, it's very, very, a lot. Of, but listen, uh, listen, listen to me as, I, as you hear the Brooklyn and Queens coming out of my <laughs> mouth. So uh, no, no, no hiding that. So let's talk about Vale and uh, Coach Colby Scudder and the Gravity Corps and Vale seems to play a particularly special role as you were starting to develop really uh, at the elite level. Yeah. I mean, when I was in Vail, you know, at Sequel Vail, it was, it was, you know, Chip Woods and, and Reed Phillips and, um, you know, JC and Teal. And we had, you know, I was kind of skiing with kids that were, you know, 17, 18, 19 years old. And I'm this little pipsqueak at, you know, 12, 13 years old. And, um, I would say it was, you know, challenging socially to be able to, you know, ski with people who are so much older than me. Um, but it really taught me to mature quickly. Um, and I learned my, all of my, my downhill skills in Vail. Um, you know, that's really what changed um, everything. And my dad knew that, you know, and, and that's one thing that he knew. I He knew that I needed to have that skill if I wanted to make it to the Olympics. And that was and that had always been my goal since I was nine years old, you know, since I met Peekaboo Street, all I wanted was to be in the Olympics. And so if I was, you know, going to achieve that, I, I had to be able to, you know, get skills in things other than slalom, you know, I needed, I needed to learn how to ski super G and downhill. And, um, and I did that in Vail. And I, I, that experience was really pivotal for me and, uh, you know, growing as an athlete. And we'll get back to uh, Peekaboo Street. I'm glad you mentioned her in, in a minute. But you had a huge international breakthrough in Italy. I know you were back there again fairly recently. Can you talk about that trip? That must have been really something. You were still very young. And you had a breakthrough winning in Italy at a very young age. Yeah, there was a, there's a the biggest international race um, for junior races is called Topolino. Um, and it's always in Italy every year. And, you know, my dad, you know, did some research and he said, you know, every woman that's won Topolino has gone on to win world cups. And, you know, that was, I, I mean, that was great because I thought, okay, well, if I win, you know, then I'll make it. But it was also a lot of pressure, you know, as a 12 year old. Um, but, I think that was a pivotal moment for me because I was able to figure out a way to ski under an extreme amount of pressure or the, the pressure that I perceived in my own mind, you know, whether it was there or not is, is one thing, but I perceived it to be a high pressure, pressure situation. And uh, I was able to figure it out and, and find a way mentally how to overcome my nerves and 
Uh, my dad was right. I won, and uh, I went on to win a couple of World Cups after that. She sure was right. And talk about Picabo. That she was an incredible athlete. I remember her, and I remember all the skiers that you uh, that you competed with. Uh, particularly memorable the year when you and Bodie Miller both won in the same year. But talk about her influence. And I know you got to meet her pretty early on, also. Yeah, I met her when I was nine years old at an autograph signing in Minnesota at uh, uh, Pure Skate and Ski, and waited in line for a few hours. And, and that you know that changed my life. I because I had never seen the ski racing wasn't on TV at the time. You know, the only time we saw ski racing was if we bought the World Cup winning runs VHS tape. Um, you know, so Peekaboo was something tangible that I could look to and say, this is what I want to be. Um, and then I was actually lucky enough to be on the U S ski team with her when I was 16. Um, you know, the year of the, uh, the Olympics in 2002. And I just shadowed her. I learned as much as I could from her. I watched her every move. Um, and you know, now everything's kind of come full circle. I was able to produce and direct a documentary on her, uh just a few months ago and tell her story which was you know again such a full circle moment and something that I was very proud to be able to to do and that she would let me do it and uh it was it was a really cool experience incredible that was for HBO wasn't it or was that your was for, your fine your final season was HBO my, that one yeah my 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 documentary my final the final season was on HBO and then I I you know directed and produced with Frank Marshall that documentary in conjunction with the Olympic channel. And we had that on Peacock. Great, great. So let's talk about the magic of the winter games a little bit. Um, I was talking with your terrific uh, comms team before with Hannah, and I was very lucky in my career. I got to go to the 94 winter games in Lillehammer and was at the 2010 games in uh, Vancouver when you won the gold. There's a specialness and an intimacy to the winter games that's very unique, very different from the summer games. Uh, and uh, I, I'd love to get your take on the specialness of the winter games. And I think a lot of people don't understand that it, it's a very different experience. It's much smaller. The, the only word that keeps coming to mind is intimate. And the stories of triumph and tragedy are incredible. My great friend who's gone now was Bud Greenspan, who really invented the genre of the sports documentary. Bud went, as I see you nodding, went to every Olympic Games post-World War II. His last games was actually Vancouver. I, he was already taken ill, and the only time he left his apartment, I, I made him go out for lunch one day. We were very close. But Bud would tell the incredible stories on film uh, of the winter athletes as well as the summer athletes the winter stories are incredible and you were a seminal player and all that so i'd love to, to talk about the winter games well first of all i'm sorry that you lost your friend um, oh bud but was I, a special guy yeah um but you know i i do think the winter olympics are special you know the summer olympics are special as well but it's it's different there are a lot more sports and um you know, there's a lot more venues and it's just more spread out. I think the Winter Olympics generally, you know, have uh, a tighter knit feel to them. And um, I don't I don't know why that is. I, I've, you know, 
I haven't really been a spectator at many Olympics. I went to the London Olympics as a spectator. Um, but, you know, from an athlete's perspective, um, I always felt this closeness to the athletes. And, you know, that's, it's an interesting time when you meet people from different sports that you would never be able to meet otherwise. Um, and you get this sense of unity, not just with your country, but, you know, also with um, all of the other countries. And it's, it's very special. And I, I cherish all of my Olympic moments, you know, walking in the open opening ceremonies, the 2002 Olympics, you know, right after nine 11, that was, I think one of the most chilling and in a great way experiences that I've ever had um, and walking in the closing ceremonies in Vancouver and uh, in Pyeongchang, you know, those, those are things that I can't even really describe to you. It's, it's, um, but it, it was exceptional and I will always remember them. And I wish I had, I, I wish I had a longer period of time to experience it. You know, it's just such a, a short moment in time that you work your whole life for and it goes by so quickly. I wish I could capture that and, and be able to experience that again. Right. That's one of, one of the things that Bud would talk about is a lifetime of training for what, you know, can be as few as a few seconds. So yeah, go, go back, I'm sorry, uh, go back to 2002, that first games. Do you remember, you know, the ceremonies, the, the butterflies? You also, as an athlete, were really aggressive as you would attack the hills and you would, you would sort of known for that and, and taking risks and, and, and doing whatever it took to get to the finish line as fast as you could. But I imagine there must have been a lot of nerves and a lot of butterflies in there too. You were very, very young at that time. Yeah, I was really young. I just turned eight, uh, 17 and, um, you know, there was, I wouldn't say, I, I put a lot of pressure on myself. There definitely wasn't pressure, any outside pressure from, you know, from, from the media. I, I was, I was, you know, I was a kid. No one expected me to do anything. Um, but that's what I had been working so hard for. I mean, since I was nine years old, you know, that's all I wanted to do. And so, um, and my entire family was there, you know, my grandparents, my aunts, my uncles, you know, everyone, even all of my siblings, which I think that was still to this day, the only race that all of my siblings were at. There's so many of them. It's hard to wrangle them all, all together. Um, but I remember being in the starting gate and, you know, there were, I think, 40,000 people in the finish and you know you could hear them it was like a wall of noise you know I came down the slalom and I came down the final pitch and I just got this almost like a blast of 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 energy and noise and wind and it was something that I've never felt again um, it was so incredible but I just remember you know, I wanted to win, even though that was such an outside chance, you know, I just, I wanted to give everything I had, you know, for myself, my family, as I, as I always do. Um, I think the Olympics again are, are special. And uh, I definitely at that time, you know, wasn't in the shape that I was in later in my career. Um, I didn't have as many of the skills that I, that I had developed later in my career. So I think I pushed myself to a degree that I don't think I was necessarily ready for, um, especially in the training runs, you know, I almost crashed on some of the jumps. I just wasn't, you know, strong enough, but um, I had the best results of, of any female from the U S uh, in that, in those games. And I was very proud of that, even though 
it was a huge disappointment for the team because everyone had been expected to win, including, you know, peekaboo. Um, but uh, for me, it was a sixth place was a huge victory. They were a hometown games for you. I mean, not Colorado hometown, but Utah and Salt Lake. <laughs> Pretty close. That's as hometown as it gets. Yeah, that's. I mean, and and all of the the athletes from the U.S. ski team, you know, lived in Utah for the the few years leading up to the games. And uh, I mean, it's so rare to get a, a home country Olympics. You know, it's such a once in a lifetime experience. I mean, the Olympics themselves are once in a lifetime experience. Then you combine that with having the home crowd, and um, it's just. I, I was so thankful that I was able to be there and experience that. And jumping around a little bit, but now all these years later, you're trying to bring the games back to Salt Lake. I am. Again, these full circle moments keep happening. But yeah, I'm I'm uh, helping the, the bid committee for the Salt Lake Games, trying to get the 2030 Olympics in Salt Lake. Um, we also have the opportunity to try for the 2034 if we don't get the 2030, but we have an exceptional bid. And I'm, um, uh, I'm actually helping also. I'm on the... I'm a, I'm chairperson for the athlete experience um, for the, for the games, which I think, you know, is something that between my mother and, you know, she was, uh, you know, had physical disabilities. And so, you know, I have a unique perspective in trying to help not just the athletes, but their families uh, get, get to the venues. And, you know, I think oftentimes the athletes families are missed and, you know, barely can get tickets. And I've, had to beg and plead people to get tickets for my family, you know, from broadcasters and, you know, friends, and that shouldn't be the case. So I'm, I'm excited to be able to, you know, to hopefully help that process. And I hope we get the games, but we, we already met with the IOC uh, in Switzerland this summer. And um, I'd say the, the meeting was very positive. That's, that's fantastic. And, and you touched on something that doesn't get talked about enough, which is, you know, pro athletes in America are, you know, paid handsomely, to say the least. The Olympic athletes, the younger ones in particular, um, very often, you know, the, the sacrifices are all on the parents who may or may not have a lot of resources. Uh, and it's a real struggle for most of the Olympic sports on the summer program and the winter program, which don't have the big TV deals. There's no equivalent of the Thursday night Amazon NFL deal for most of the Olympic sports. I imagine you heard a lot of stories and knew a lot of people on the American team who went through heaven and hell just to get to where you were. Yeah. Uh, You know, being an Olympic athlete is not, you know, everyone I think has this perception of Olympic athletes being, you know, very glamorous and, you know, we make just as much money as, you know, the, the NBA players, the NFL players is completely false. You know um, I'd say the majority of athletes that I have known um, have second jobs, um, you know, and I'm training with uh, the summer Olympians in the Olympic training center in San Diego, California. There's, you know, people are working out in the morning, going to their jobs in the afternoon and coming back to work out for their second session in the evening, you know, it's a, it's a grind. It is grueling and families sacrifice everything they have. I mean, my family was no different. You know, uh, we, we had to sacrifice a lot, uh, you know, five kids is, and trying to live in Colorado is not a, it's not an easy task. And um, I'm, I was lucky because 
we had a development program when I was, I was on the development program. When I was 14 and they paid for most of my expenses. Had I not had that, I don't know if I would have been able to make it. Um, and so, you know, the funding of, uh, you know, that it takes to be able to make the Olympics alone and then also to sustain it is incredible. Wow. I'm, I'm glad we touched on that because that's not talked about enough. So your Olympic journey continues and you go to 2006 in Italy um, and have a hard time early on and a, and a very memorable crash. Yeah. Talk uh, about the emotion when you realize as an athlete, I am far from an elite athlete. I, I would be the precise opposite of an elite athlete, but there's got to be a moment in your head when all of a sudden, you know, oh, this is not going, you know, I'm going, I'm going to go down and I can't stop it. Yeah. I mean, I've crashed a lot in my career. I think most people know that um, there are definitely times when, you know, sometimes you don't, it happens so fast. You're going, you know, 80, 85 miles an hour. You don't even, you know, it happens in a split second. And before you know it, you're in the fences. Um, in the, the 2006 Olympics in Torino, that was the case. You know, I had, I was second place in the first training round and I came down in the second training round and I, I caught my edge so quickly. I did the splits and I flew off the jump backwards, landed on my back. I thought I had broken my back. Um, and in an instant, I thought my career was over. And I think that was, you know, for me, that was, wasn't the crash. It was more the perspective of, you know, I could be done. And I never thought that before, you know, I'd crashed many times up until that point, but never in my mind had I ever thought that it, it could end my career. Um, and so that really was a pivotal moment for me as far as changing my perspective. Um, and you know, I escaped the hospital. I, I made it back for the race 48 hours later. I didn't do that well, but you know, in my mind, the most important thing was being in the starting gate and using that opportunity and, and not taking it for granted. And I never took a race for granted after that. Well, you still finished eighth in the world, which is not so bad. And, but and at the Olympics, uh, the Olympics right. only medals, the only medals I, count. I'm, no. I'm with you, top three, I get it. Um, but 48 hours after a crash where you thought your career might be over, to be back up on skis performing at that level, you've got to be pretty beat up. And uh, I imagine at least a little bit black and blue to say the least. Uh, is that just mental fortitude? Like, I'm going to, you know, this is who I am. I'm going to go out and get it done. The science has advanced tremendously over the years, but you know, that sounds to me like it's just all you and intestinal fortitude. You know, that, that was, uh, I think that was the most pain I've ever raced in. Um, even with, you know, my knee injuries, I think, I still think that those races in Torino were the most painful. I could barely move, um, let alone race. And, you know, I, I definitely, fudged my way through my physical test, um, you know, with the doctor and I may have told some fibs on how I was feeling. Um, but you know, I was, I was determined to get back to that starting gate. And, you know, I always, I feel that, you know, pain, as long as it's not going to, you know, damage anything long-term or put you at, you know, significant risk, 
I think, I think that pain is something that you can mentally overcome. You know, it's, it's uh, something that you can grind your way through if, if you want to, but you know, everyone's different and, and every experience is different. But for me, that was, um, that was something that I, I wasn't going to miss that race for anything. And your teammates recognized you with the U S Olympic spirit award. Yeah. I was like, it was really nice. You know, I was like, wow. I, I kind of envisioned myself being Herman Meyer. I was like, I could, you know, crash like Herman and come back and win a medal. And wouldn't that be amazing? And I had that in my head and, you know, I didn't do that obviously, but honestly, the, the spirit award was significant to me at that time because, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't really feel like I was doing anything spectacular um, because I was just doing what I thought needed to be done. But at the same time, it felt nice to be recognized and, and to have that. And I, I still cherish that spirit award. Absolutely. Uh you then start on an incredible run winning the World Cup for three consecutive years, starting in 2008. And in doing so, get to travel the world. You grew up, you know, with, you know, incredible grandparents and parents who were willing to make sacrifices for you. Um, I love the story you told about your mom and a mortgage. All of a sudden, you're traveling the world. Uh, that's got to be an incredible experience for what is still a pretty young lady. Yeah, I mean, I think traveling, I always viewed as, you know, it's kind of part of part of skiing and part of what I love about skiing. You know, I, you know, was going to Mount Hood when I when I was seven years old, you know, I started going to Europe when I was nine years old, you know, I, I've, I spent you know, most of my time traveling to races. And the only difference was that I was 100% on my own. And I, and I really had been 100% on my own since I made the development team since I was 14 years old. Um, and, you know, I really, I think ski racing taught me how to be independent and, you know, how to really handle anything on my own. I mean, even when I was nine, I was at a ski camp, you know, with the Buck Hill ski team in Minnesota by myself, you know, without my parents. And, you know, of course my, my coach had also coached my dad. And so they were friends and could keep his eye on me. But um, I had my little, my little folder with, you know, the, the marks and the shillings and the, the lira. And I had everything in my little folder and um, I felt very responsible at nine years old um, to be able to handle that. But yeah, I think traveling the world has been such a great experience. I wish I, have been able to spend, you know, more time in the places that I've been to. Um, you know, I, oftentimes you just see the hotel room and the mountain and that's it. Um, but I, you know, I feel like places I've gone to in the summer for training camps, you know, New Zealand and Chile, you know, I've, I've been able to really experience those places and some of the most magical experiences of my life. It's a sort of a, 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 a throwaway question, but is there a favorite place? that you, if you could blink and be anywhere right now that you'd like to be? It depends on what we're talking about. Are we talking about racing or, or the, the place itself? I mean, everything has a kind of a different meaning for me. I, I think if I could ski anywhere, I'd probably say Cortina or Lake Louise, you know, just being on those trails, you know, has so much, there's so many memories and so many feelings there. I would love to be there. And they're some of the most beautiful places on earth. Um, you know, I love New Zealand. It's such a peaceful, you know, 
peaceful and beautiful place and almost like an untouched part of the world you know yeah. it's, it's really magical um but i don't know i think i think mainly i just want to be home <laughs> yeah no like all of us i i love new zealand also i love that no one locks their doors you know there's a civility yeah. to the culture there and you mentioned Lake Louise, so let's, we'd be remiss not to talk a little bit about 2010 and the Vancouver Games, which, you know, was a real shining moment for you. Yeah, that was an incredible Olympics. And uh, I mean, I definitely have never had that much pressure um, on me at any one point in my life. You know, I, I hurt my shin coming in. I hadn't skied for two weeks. Um I hadn't even, I didn't even know if I was going to be able to race. I walked in the press conference and I had more cameras put in my face than I've ever experienced in my life. And it was pretty overwhelming, but, um, you know, I think it almost felt like it was a home Olympics because it was Canada and it was so close and there were so many American journalists and, you know, same, same time zone and everything. So, um, it felt there was so much pressure, but it also felt a little bit like home and uh I don't know what it was but um I think it was you know really meant to be and I I pretty much saved up every disappointing memory that I had in my life you know from ski racing from you know every time someone said I couldn't do it and I used that in that race I told myself all those things in the starting gate and and I I willed myself to the finish incredible performance so just going through sort of the the following years you had some tough crashes some tough injuries and it seemed like you were always coming back and always excelling sports science i would imagine played a role helping you there was tremendous advancements um in science uh at the elite level but talk about the comeback because you've mastered it as well as anyone in sports ever has coming back not only to compete but coming back and winning uh and that's very hard to do and all of a sudden the pendulum of life swings now you're not the youngest and you're still out there getting it done talk about that the art of the comeback the 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 positives and some of the tougher times i mean the comebacks are you know, a unique opportunity. You're basically starting from scratch. Um, you know, you, when you have a torn ACL or, you know, you have a lot of ligament damage, it's such a major surgery that your, your muscles are gone and you're, you have to relearn everything. You have to build everything back up. And I use that always as an opportunity, you know, to become better, um, and, you know, find new ways to learn and grow and, be a smarter competitor. And I wanted to be a smarter competitor, but I was also forced to be a smarter competitor because, you know, once I started getting injured, uh, I had, it was from then on six injury, six, six years in a row, I, I had a surgery every year, you know? So, um, it was by the end, I was just trying to get back to where I was. I couldn't rebuild myself better than I had been before. Um, but I think my perspective was always what set me apart from, from everyone else and, and what allowed me to come back as confident as I did. Um, because I, 
I put in the work and I knew that I was ready. Every time I came back, you know, I knew I was ready to win. And so I was never afraid. You know, I never questioned what I was doing. I never thought that I couldn't do it. I never worried that I would crash again. You know, I was out there every time I was in the starting gate, I was there to win. And I, and I trusted my body and what I had, how much time and work I had put into to putting it back together. Incredible story. And your last winter games in 2018, I know was a very special one in memory of your grandfather. Um, and I love that line when you talked about, you know, our family never gives up and I never give up. And you really see that narrative throughout your career, but that last games, that must also hold a special place in your, in your heart. It was such a big part of your life for almost 20 years. Yeah. And uh, it was so, that, that Olympics was so emotional for me. You know, I had missed Sochi and, um, you know, I, I had hoped so much that my grandfather would be there since he, you know, was in the, was in the Korean war and he was really hanging on for so long to try to make it. And, you know, unfortunately it just was a couple months short. Um, but I, you know, having lost my grandfather, knowing that was my last Olympics, I was coming in with, uh, I had had, I had a crash in December um, before that games and I had dislodged a giant chunk of my cartilage and I couldn't really bend or straighten my leg. I kind of was stuck in this middle ground and um, I was not physically even close to a hundred percent. So there was a lot of things working against me in those games, but all I wanted to do was win for my grandfather. And I was in a lot of ways, very sad that I wasn't able to win for him. But at the same time, I, I was very proud of third and I think he would have been proud of me as well. Incredibly proud. I'm sure. Um, great, great stories, Lindsay. So at a certain point, about a year or so later, you decide that it's time to end the career as an elite level athlete. Talk about coming to that decision, which I think unless you have been in that position, you cannot possibly understand what that thought process is like intellectually and more importantly, emotionally. It's a really hard decision to come to. I mean, like you said, you know, I've done this my whole life. You know, there's never been a day when I didn't think about ski racing and, you know, what time I woke up, what time I went to bed, what I ate, what, how I trained, you know, how much time I dedicated to business. That was all that all revolved around ski racing. And, you know, when that's gone, it's a completely different ball game. And so I knew that and I never wanted to give it up, but I think in some ways it was a blessing that, you know, my body stopped me because, you know, there is life after skiing and, um, as much as I didn't want to admit that, that is, that is the truth. Every athlete has, has a expiration date and I had reached mine. Um, you know, I, after the Olympics, I had surgery to repair that cartilage. And then I crashed again in Chile in September and had another surgery. And then I crashed again in November and tore my LCL. You know, I was skiing on, on with two knee braces. I felt like I was being held together by duct tape, you know, by the skin of my teeth, I was making it down every run. And I just, that's not a way to live. You know, I, I spent too much time in a hospital bed and I, 
I wanted to, I want to be able to ski with my kids. You know, I want to be able to, I, right now I have a hard time walking or standing for long periods of time, you know, and, and, uh, that's something that I've given up for my career. Um, but I knew, I knew that I had reached the end and, and, uh, I'm thankful that I was able to finish on such a great note, you know, to win, you know, another world championship medal and to have my family there and, you know, to have that experience. I, I think that's about as good of a, a final competition as one can hope for. It, it sure is. And you've spent the last several years pretty busy. <laughs> when you were still competing, going back to the teens, let's go back to the 2018 games and around that period, you still competed at a very high level. Uh, and we'd be remiss not to mention you also won more World Cup races than any other athlete in history, which is incredible. But did you start to think about what would be next and what you wanted to do? Or did all that sort of start to crystallize after you hung up the skis, so to speak? No, that's one thing my dad always taught me um, was that, you know, as an athlete, as, especially as a ski racer, you, you do have an expiration date and you need to prepare yourself for life after skiing. And, you know, if, if you want to not have to work, you're going to have to do a lot more than be ju than just be a ski racer. You know, you have to be much more than an athlete. You have to transcend sport if you want to make any kind of money and, and not have to have a full-time, you know, real job when you retire. And so it's always, always looked at everything, you know, he would cut out clippings of different female athletes, um, you know, people that have, you know, women who have, just started to get big contracts you know at that time it was kind of a tipping point for women in sports and he kept he always said to me you know this is a great time for you to be a woman a woman in sports and you have to utilize this time and I mean he had the foresight to make a website for me when I was you know 12 years old 13 years old you know that's no one even thought of that you know and I, and I think so again, I, I think I was really ahead of my time in some of those things, especially in my, within my sport, you know, no one was, everyone was so focused on skiing. No one thought about business and, and how to maximize everything. And, and I worked just as hard off the hill as I did on the hill. And I think that's what led me to be in such a good position when I retired. And now I can use everything that I've done, everything that I've learned and transition that into, you know, the real world. And, you know, have a life in business and, you know, to be able to walk into a boardroom and hold my own and, and be, you know, as even though I never went to college, I feel I have the experience, the world experience to be able to speak in a way um, where my opinion matters. Well, you may not have a certificate on the wall, but you sure went to school. Uh, in, in a, the in school a of life. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Can we talk a little bit about the Lindsey Vaughn Foundation? Uh, I, I love, love what it. you're doing there to, to help young people in particular. I know you came back with a live version of your gala a couple months ago, but can we talk about the root of the foundation and just share some of the incredible work that the Lindsey Vaughn Foundation is doing? Thank you. I, I started my foundation in 2015 and I think it was one of the best things that came out of, you know, my, my knee injuries, you know, I had the time to be able to think about something like that and how I could give back 
um, and use my platform for something other than myself. You know, uh, Peekaboo was really the inspiration behind it. You know, when I met her, I met her for 90 seconds, you know, when I was nine years old and she made me believe that I could be an Olympic skier. And I thought if she could do that in 90 seconds, you know, what could I do to other children in the same position? If I spent a whole day with them, you know, if I helped them believe in their, in their dreams, not just in skiing, but in life, you know, as human beings. So that was really the inspiration behind it. And, you know, we had strong girls camps and we have, you know, free community events. We've had people speak, you know, authors speak, we've had, you know, psychologists speak, we've, we've, um, and we've really developed a great scholarship program. And I think because of COVID, we, we, we kind of got away from the programs and we're going to, you know, start those up again soon. But um, our, our scholarships have gotten so much successful results. And we actually had one girl go to the, uh, the Olympics in, um, in Beijing, who was a scholarship recipient and that helped her make it. So and again, we have we have fifty percent sports and fifty percent percent educational based scholarships, but it's something that you know I'm really proud of. I think probably what I'm most proud of in my career, um, because success is not success unless you can share with others and help others. You know, pa- pass down what you've learned and help others to accomplish their own dreams. And I think that's something that's really important and sometimes missed in professional sports. Right. And to your credit, a lot of people that are in a position to do that don't always take that opportunity and you are. Um, and that's a, a real manifestation of, you know, those Minnesota values and, and paying it forward. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I have the perspective of peekaboo, you know, when I was nine and, and what that meant to me. And also actually on the same day I asked, there was, there's, there's three athletes at that autograph signing. And I asked, I was on the way to the bathroom and I asked the other athlete if I could have her, her autograph. And she said straight up, no. And it crushed me. You know, it really took all of the wind from my wings, you know, and, and I, and I remembered that. And so I carried that with me my whole career. I never wanted to be the person that said, no, I did everything I could to sign every autograph I, I, I had time for. And, you know, I think when you have that perspective, when you have such an experience ingrained in you, it, cha- it changes things a lot. And not every athlete has a perspective. Um, I wish I kind of hadn't, but um, I think it, it guided me and it, it helped me make sure that I, I always tried to be the rest, best role model that I could be because it does have an impact. One word can change someone's life in a good way or a bad way. Yeah, no, very, very well said. Um... You referenced earlier how your mom would drive, you know, and you'd use maps to find things that we didn't have Waze or Google Maps, etc. You also came of age just as digital media was coming of age and the age of scrutiny really hit us all very hard. And I think to some degree, we're better off with all the power of the phones and tablets and everything else. And I think in many cases we're worse off. Talk about that experience of living a life very much in public. And, you know, it used to be, you know, you'd wait. I, when I was a boy, I remember I'd wait for my dad to bring the newspaper home so you could find out who won the baseball games the night before. 
you know, now you can watch a game, every pitch, literally of every game, you know, in real time, that scrutiny and living a life as a very public personality, that's got to be a whole nother set of challenges off the slopes. And you navigated it, I think, as well as anybody could. But that must have been a little bit challenging at times. It was challenging. I think, you know, kind of Facebook and, and social media was really was really becoming something huge right at the time that that I kind of hit my peak, you know, as far as winning the Olympics in Vancouver and, you know, people in the U.S., you know, started recognizing who I was and, um, you know, it, it was, it was different because I had won, you know, 42 races before I won the Olympics. I'd won the world championships and, you know, I'd experienced media, but it wasn't, it, this is a different kind of media. This is a different kind of scrutiny. This is, this is not sports media. This is, you know, people attacking you as a person. Um, and that, that, you know, I can handle anyone criticizing my skiing, you know, I'll, you know, I, I can take anything like that, you know, because I don't, but I, I know what I'm capable of and I, it doesn't bother me at all. That's such a sport. You know, everyone's going to have their opinion, but when you start to, you know, attack someone's personality, the way they look, you know, the way they dress, the way they talk, you know, who they are as a person, you know, who they date and all of those things, it becomes something much different and much harder to deal with. Um, and I have had to develop really thick skin and I wish I didn't, but at the same time, again, it's made me a much stronger person. And I, I realized quickly that, you know, I am who I am and you can like me or you can hate me, but I'm not changing who I am. And I think that was something that always has helped guide me in, you know, how I approach things. Cause of course I, you know, I want to respond to hate to, to, you know, trolls. And I, you know, I want to, you know, speak my mind and say the things that bother me, but it actually just gives those people more of a voice and they don't deserve that. So, um, but it's taken me a long time to be able to get to the point where I could say that. Yeah. Well, you had pretty thick skin before, but as you said, it's a different level of, of skin thickness that's required. God bless. And just to wrap, uh, we both lost our moms fairly recently. Um, yours very recent um, to ALS. And um, I, I know from having lost my mom, what that meant to me, I, I imagine yours exactly the same. You've taken it to heart and are helping raise money and helping draw awareness to ALS. Can we talk about that just a little bit? And, and um, uh, we weren't able to do a funeral for my mom. She passed in the midst of COVID. And um, uh, that was hard. Um, your loss is even more recent. Um, and it sounds like your mom had a pretty rough exit. ALS is not a kind illness. My mother had dementia, also not kind in a different way. Um, but she was such a seminal figure for you um, and I love that you're, you know, trying to help ALS. No, oh, I'm sorry that you lost your mother. I, my grandmother also had dementia and, uh, she passed away this spring. So I understand, understand that unfortunately as well. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry you didn't have a funeral. We, we just had the funeral for my mother, um, just two weeks ago. And, uh, you know, it was, it was hard to see such a, a beautiful person have such a horrible disease and 
you know, so many people and I, even myself, you know, I did an ice bucket challenge. I had no idea what ALS was. And, you know, it's a really um, underfunded disease. You know, there's, there was no medications, you know, I, I took my mom to the Mayo Clinic, you know, Dr. Jones, best neurologist in the country, and there's nothing that you can do. And um, I've spoken to many people and um, there are a lot of research studies now going on because of the awareness that the ice bucket challenge brought. And there's been a few pieces of legislation that have been passed that's, that's helped, um, that's helped the funding. And also uh, there's one medication that just became available you know, the verdict's unsure of, you know, if that actually helps or not, but um, I felt it was important and my mother wanted, you know, to make sure that her disease wasn't in vain, that she could help others. And so um, I'm trying to, you know, I have my GoFundMe page. It's very rudimentary at this point, but I'm, you know, just trying to raise, we've raised about $50,000. Um for ALS research. And, and I'm definitely going to try to, you know, help raise awareness. And I'm trying to find different organizations that I can work with at this point. I still have my own foundation, which I don't want to lose sight of. Um, but I also feel that I need to, you know, to follow my mother's wishes and, and really to help raise awareness for ALS because no one deserves to, to have that. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, so many areas where we've made so much progress and uh, and some where we've made almost no progress. And I remember yeah. when we took my mom, you know, when she was starting to slip early on and we went and saw some top neurologist and, you know, basically said exactly what you heard. There's kind of nothing we can do. And yeah. that, that was tough to hear. It's really hard to hear. And, you know, to your point, as, as far as we co we've come, you know, medically, scientifically, there's still so much that we don't know and so many diseases that, you know, we really have no answer for. And that's really difficult to, you know, to process. And I think in some ways, you know, it was easier to accept her passing because, you know, knowing that there's nothing that we can do, you know, there was no, there was no hope, you know, there's not like there was one thing that we just, couldn't get that was going to save her. And, and I think that kind of gave us peace in a little, in a small way, because, um, you know, we just made her as comfortable as possible and, and, you know, there's nothing we could do. And, uh, I'm just thankful that she's not suffering anymore. Right. No, as am I with my mom and good for you, uh, you know, not only going back to those early memories of what those few seconds with peekaboo meant to you and how you still carry it with you all these years later with the foundation and giving other young people a chance um, and following your mom's wishes and trying to, you know, let her life, you know, and her passing help other people in the future. And I, I think one of our great joys for what we do at Advertising Week is we're going to Africa. We're bringing our event to Johannesburg. And awesome. it's, it's a direct response to what we've seen over the years, which is the industry fail wildly around diversity and give a lot of lip service and say, we can't find young black talent. And there is a lot of young black talent in South Africa, where we're going in particular, who are dying for a pathway into the modern economy and don't have one. 
And that's the impetus for us going there. And, you know, one of Mandela's, you know, great proverbs, and I'm not going to get the words exactly right, but the sentiment I will get right, which is the way you fill your own cup is by filling up the cups of other people. And you've lived your life that way um, and continue to now. And it's incredible. You're still so young uh, and you've accomplished so much, but I love how you're attacking the hill of life the same way that you attack the hill as an athlete um, in your entrepreneurial ventures and your charitable ventures. And I think there's an awful lot of chapters of the Lindsey Vaughn story still to be written. Uh, and it's been a joy. To, it's been a joy to get to talk to you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm just trying to fill up my other people's cups the way my mother did. And um, yeah, I'm, I'll keep trying to be a positive person and, and positively affect as many people as I can. And, and that, that's all you can do. Well, thank you, Lindsay, and appreciate you being here on Great Minds. An absolute joy. Thank you. Appreciate it. One final time for Lindsay Vaughn. The thing about Lindsay Vaughn going 62 miles an hour like she is right now, the only thing that makes her afraid is that she's not going 63. And she trails now all the way out of the gate. And this is where Vaughn will tend to push too hard, where she went down in the Super G. She's through clean. Revensburg has the top time. Yasmin Flurry has also been down the hill, so just the third skier down is Vaughn trying to get ahead of the 102.56. Point two in the red, the first interval. We'll check out the next split. She's gained some time, just seven hundreds back. And this is where Vaughn was fast in the one most recent run in the combined, set out the slalom, knows how to bring time back. She is the greatest glider in the world. And now in the green by two tenths. So ahead of the pace by Rebensburg. Again, Vaughn just the third skier down the hill, but going through the final few gates for the final time in her story career. Vaughn to the line here in Norway, Sweden. Yes, on top for now. One final bow for Vaughn, who gets down the hill safely in her final run and has the lead over Rebensburg by three-tenths. You know, Dan, I bumped into her father just before this start about 20 minutes ago, and this is a man that said he never got nervous watching his daughter a ski race. The only thing that made him nervous was whether she would win. But this morning, he too, like us, had that sense of foreboding that she wouldn't get to the finish line so a lot of happy people right now there's going to be a lot of hugs throughout the day for fun we all have a favorite tv ad tv tells powerful memorable stories that influence and inspire and as streaming becomes the new way we watch brands can now measure their ads impact down to the last decimal Mountain's self-serve connected TV marketing software provides real-time insights that take the guesswork out of ad measurement. Mountain lets you build customizable dashboards with the metrics that matter most and compare your campaigns to other channels with leading web analytics integrations. You can even track when viewers visit your website or make a purchase, regardless of which household device they use. Visit mountain.com to learn more.